Welcome to River and Way. We're so glad to have you all here today. Um, there's a couple things that we want to announce, we want to share, um, and then we're going to jump into the teaching for today. I hate stopping good conversation, so um, it's actually a really miserable part of this job. So, um, so a, a couple things. Today, uh, after the gathering, we're having a like kids uh, church uh, volunteer meeting, and so if, if you're volunteering in that space or if you have kids that are in kids' church normally, we'd love for you to stay for that. It's going to be at 11.15. We won't keep you terribly long. Uh, we just have a few, like, uh, philosophical things we're going to walk through as well as just, like, what does the normal rhythm of caring for our kids look like? So I uh, want to invite you to stay for that uh, after our gathering time today. And then the second thing uh, is songs and stories. So songs and stories uh, is next week. And what that is, it's a brand new thing that Jesus just kind of like put in our hearts as a conviction for his church. Um, and so we're going to come next week at 9.30 at our normal time. Uh, it's not going to be set up like this. There's going to be tables with chairs around them. We're going to eat together. Uh, we're going to have food for you. Um, so we're going to eat together. And then we're going to have some time uh, to share what the Lord's been doing. Our, our faith our Christian faith, our heritage, is a heritage of songs and stories. And so we want to like carve out time to continue to be people that like share God's stories, share what God is doing uh, amongst his people for the edification of his church. And so we believe, just as Brandon was talking about earlier, we believe that the Holy Spirit is in each and every one of you and that he's given you gifts for his body. And so as we gather next week, we are going to intentionally create space to allow people to share what the Lord's been doing, share uh, how God changed their life or their story, um, share from the scriptures, whatever, whatever those things are. It's also a space, if you're a musician and you want to bring a song or you're a poet and you want to bring a poem or something along those lines to build up the church, to share a bit of your heart with this family of Jesus followers, we want to create intentional time for that. So that's, that's next week. Uh, we will have child care for those uh, for that time, but it'll just be for children under elementary. So if you have a kindergartner or up, they will be with you in here. Um, and so just kind of plan your family accordingly with that. Um, so we're going to do our scripture reading, and then we're going to jump into the teaching. When we read the scriptures at Riverway, Way, we stand. And so as we submit ourselves to the scriptures, please join me as you stand and we read God's word together. If you have a Bible, um, we'll be reading from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were born before you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come together today to gather around your scriptures, around the bread and the cup, and to sing to you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We submit our lives to your word. As we experience your word, God, we experience you. This is, this is the, like the revealed truth of who you are. This is you showing and declaring who you are to your people. And so we, we thank you for it, God. We love you and we praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So two years ago, my family took six weeks out of our summer to go to Mexico to try to learn Spanish. We, uh, we knew we were coming back to Bakersfield, the church plant. Jesus had kind of been stirring that in our hearts. So we, we, went to six, we went to Mexico for six weeks to like try and grasp the language. We didn't, to be clear, so please don't come speak to us in Spanish. Six weeks is not nearly long enough, regardless of how good your lessons are, to like grasp the language. Um, but we spent six weeks in this like tiny little 500 square foot apartment, me and my wife and our four kids, and we loved the simplicity. We loved the purity of not having a bunch of things or a bunch of toys even for our kids to play, but being like bound by this little space where we could just like simply live together and be together. One of the things you hear often if you've ever traveled into like Latin culture or, or places that have Latin culture is you hear the phrase like pura vida, pura vida. I feel like the echo is really bad, so that's why I'm saying it poorly. It's not because of my bad accent. Um, but you hear a phrase pura vida, which is like the pure life, the pure life. And my Spanish teacher, uh, who spoke great English, used to always say to me, I'd ask him about his day, and, and where we were, there were these like gnarly, like seven to 10 foot waves every day, and it was like way too sketchy for me to even like boogie board, let alone try and surf. And, and he, but he used to go be in the water every day. And I would always ask him, like, how was the waves? How was the water? And he would always, in like a mocking California accent, say, I'm just trying to, like, live the good Pura Vida life, bro. And, and just, like, sh like in, in a completely mocking way, just make fun of the way we talk about life here and the waves here uh, in the States. But um, Pura Vida was a phrase he used often. And, and Jesus... Jesus, when he uses the phrase pure in heart, he's, he's not talking about pura vida. He's not talking about a pure, simplistic life, although I would argue like there's much to learn from Latin culture about simplicity and about familia and those sorts of things. We have a, we have a lot to learn, but um, that's not what Jesus is actually getting after. Jesus is not getting after the simplicity of our life. He's getting after like the root of our life. He's getting after our hearts. This brief statement by Jesus actually takes us back to unpacking the word blessed. 
So when we read uh, the Beatitudes, we see the word blessed, and we, that, that word blessed is makairos in the Greek, and we spent a lot of time unpacking that a handful of sermons ago. But what that, what that word ultimately means is like the grace gift to be able to participate with God toward a life of flourishing. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, that statement encompasses makairos. It encompasses the blessed life that is built around the foundation that we're given through Jesus of grace in order to like live in his presence and flourish with him. And Jesus doesn't just pull this statement from nowhere. Jesus pulls this statement, the blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. He pulls this from the Old Testament as he often does. Um, he pulls it from Psalm 24. Verses one through four, I'm gonna go ahead and read that. Verses one through four in Psalm 24, it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Let us not forget that. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend, who may climb, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So in verse three, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, Jesus is, is dragging in verse four and responding to that question. What David, who wrote this psalm, is really asking is like, who can go into God's presence? Who can see him? So often in the scriptures in the Old Testament, the mountaintop is the place where God resides. It's the place where like heaven and earth both figuratively and literally meet. Think like Mount Sinai or Mount Harab or something like that where God's presence dwells and people go to meet him on the mountaintop. So David's asking, like, who can climb this mountain and actually see God's face? In verse 4, answers that question, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. So what does it mean from Psalm 24 and Matthew 5, what does it mean to be pure? Or when you hear the word pure, what comes to mind or what comes to heart? If you were around the church like me during like the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, purity did not have much at all to do with our heart. It actually felt like uh, the call of a Christian in the late 90s and early 2000s. There was like this like uh, purity culture uh, arch or arc that like was at its climax at that point. It felt like the call of a Christian was not to like follow and obey Jesus. It felt like the call of a Christian was to remain abstinent and sexually pure. That's where like the church chose to hone in on uh, with us in this, in this like purity culture climate. And so th those things, at least when I come to this text, that's what I think of when I hear the word pure. I go back to like sitting in a room with other high schoolers and, and promising to be pure until marriage. That's, that's the thing that I recall when this word gets mentioned. And of course, I just wanna make clear, like at River and Way, we absolutely hold to Jesus's high sexual ethic. 
Don't misunderstand that. We absolutely believe that marriage is between one man and one woman for life and that sex should only exist in that context. But during purity culture, during the climax of purity culture in the church, we began to formulate purity not around our hearts but around like sex. We said things like your body is like a piece of tape. And once it is used, no one else will want to use it again. And other damaging things that reduce the complexity of a person trying to follow Jesus and places their value not in the fact that they're made in God's image, but like, did you do this certain act or not? And what happens when we're raised in a culture like that is we end up reducing Christian faith, not to following Jesus, but to like rule keeping for the sake of rule keeping. We begin to believe that if we, we keep the rules, that both we are right and that God owes us something. Or we enter into marriage just from this purity culture context. We enter into marriage with a skewed view of self and sex and body and image. We become obsessed with demonstrating our purity. We become obsessed with demonstrating our rightness, which leads us, or I will be like very honest, it led me to become really good at hiding my sin and really bad at confession. It formulates this deep thing in me that regardless of what's actually going in on my heart, I must present rightness to my church community or I will not be accepted because this is the thing we've chosen to place above every other thing. So many people I know that experienced purity culture through the church in those years have a deep problem with confessing their sin. And I think much of its root was born out of this culture, and it's a root that I just all week have been praying, like, God, would you break that root in us? Would you break the root that, that believes that, like, because we act this way, God, then you should respond this way? Or when I was a kid, it was, God, because I'm choosing to wait until marriage, I have the full expectation that you give me a wife who has as well. You do, like, I deserve that, God. And so we must break that, like, deep root that lives as a part of our Christian experience. When in reality, our sexuality as people should not be understood or taught as primarily like good or bad. And I don't know what it is. I can't place my finger on why in the human experience we feel the necessity to put everything in one of those two categories, the good or the bad category. When what, what in, real, in reality what we need is we need to understand that our sexuality is a part just like of our human category that we, are, like, that we are broken and marred absolutely and that we need God's redemption and renewal and we need life again in the deepest, most broken parts of who we are in our soul and what we've done with our bodies. We need restoration and healing and that's what Jesus brings. We need our like sexual ethic, the way we think about, about sex to be renewed and redeemed by the way the scriptures teach us to think about sex. But when Jesus says that blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, he is not talking at all about this inheritance that we carry with us around the word of purity. 
He is not talking about keeping high moral ground or not crossing moral boundaries. He is talking about your heart. We see Jesus, um, when it comes to high moral ground, we see Jesus constantly interacting with the Pharisees in his time. And the Pharisees are the religious elite of that day. They keep all the rules. They don't cross any of the lines. Quite literally, they take God's law, and then they add like a box of human law around it to protect themselves from not breaking God's law. So they add to the law to ensure that they don't come close to God's law. And like in my moralistic thinking, that actually sounds like a really great idea. It actually sounds like in some ways much like purity culture that I experienced, where we, where we ensure to not cross a line, but what ends up happening when we do those things is we end up like missing the point of what is like in, well-intentioned, maybe, but we end up missing the point of what's actually happening in our hearts. The Pharisees missed what's happening in their hearts. So while people in that time would have looked at the Pharisees and said, like, clearly they're the holy ones. Clearly they're on the right side of morality. They're keeping God's law. They're doing all the things and more. Jesus actually has a very different description of what the Pharisees are doing in their time. Matthew 23, verse 27, this is Jesus speaking to the religious elite of that time. Let us not miss the connotation um, let us not miss the connotation that like the religious elite at that time and the religious elite at this time, um, Jesus's primary concern has always been about the heart and will continue to be about the heart. And so if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, uh, this is a really good reminder to remember that like our hearts also desire to draw lines around things to ensure that we don't uh, break God's instructions or not keep his commands. So let's remind ourselves of that. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. You see, church, Jesus says purity is not morality. And purity of heart is not rule-keeping or high moral ground. May the Spirit of God set you free from that expectation that's been placed upon you today. That thing that lives inside of you. God wants your heart. He doesn't want you to keep moral ground. He wants your heart. That's what Jesus wants. He wants the like core of who we are. But, but so often as followers of Jesus, this is what we're actually known for in the world. In the book Unchristian by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, it's a collection of things that people who don't follow Jesus, people who don't call themselves Christians, it's a collection of what they say about the church, what they say about you and I, people who do follow Jesus. And when they ask the question, what are Christians known for, the author summarized the most common response, which is outsiders, people that are not a part of the church, that are not identified as Christians, outsiders think of Christianity of, like they think of our moralizing, our condemnations, and our attempts to draw boundaries around everything. 
Even if these standards are accurate and biblical, this seems to be all the Christian faith has to offer. And to me, it's heartbreaking that the dying and suffering and broken world around us that thinks what we're actually doing as we gather here today is we're drawing moral lines around ourselves to ensure that others don't come in. It's heartbreaking. Lord, have mercy on us, your church. And does God want you to abide by his commands? Does he want you to abide by his instructions? Of course God wants you to abide. They're for your flourishing. That's what they're there for. But he doesn't want you to bypass him to get to those things. God wants you to abide in him. God wants you to abide in his instructions after you meet him. After you receive his love for you, he doesn't want you to bypass him for the sake of some of the other things that he said. He wants you to fall in love with who he is and stay there and then function from a place of God's love. So when a person with a checkered moral past comes to God or comes to the church, they do not need to make themselves pure in order to come to God. When a per, or when a person has committed sexual sin, comes to God, they do not need to be made pure before they can come to the person and the character and the heart of God. So often in Christian culture, we want people's behavior to change before we give them space to allow Jesus to change their heart. But Jesus is not primarily concerned about behavior. He is primarily concerned about your heart. And may that be true of us as his church. That we have the capacity to have enough grace and mercy to allow people in process toward Jesus to not be pure and walk in perfection just as you or I don't either regardless of what mask we put on in the morning. May we be covered in grace and mercy. So what does this mean then? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In, in the West, heart often comes to mean feelings. And the evangelical church has a complicated relationship with this word feelings. We don't really know what to do with it. Many of us have been taught to like ignore our feelings or push them down. Our feelings and emotions, they're bad, they're evil. We should separate ourselves from them. We even like quote Bible verses at our emotions and that's not altogether wrong, but it's not altogether right either. You see, and, and this tension actually comes from the scriptures. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can trust it? But then Proverbs 3, five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. We are told not to trust our hearts, but we are told to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and then we will be saved. So what do we do with this tension between like trusting our hearts and not trusting our hearts? First, we must understand what the Bible is actually talking about when it says the word heart. When the Bible talks about our heart, it, the Bible's not talking about how we feel on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not talking about our emotional state, whether today is a good day or a bad day. Um, that could be changed by the reality of like having a kid and being woken up at 5 a.m. makes the rest of the day a bad day. And, and that's not what Jesus is getting after here. 
Biblically, our heart is the place where everything we do in life flows from. Biblically, our heart is the place where everything we do in life flows from. Luke 6.45 says, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's happening in your heart, listen to the words you use. Better yet, and this is so convicting for me, better yet, if you want to know what's happening in your heart, listen to the words you want to use but may have the self-control to not use. So that's what it means when out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is the core center of who we are that everything else flows from. And Dallas Willard says, the heart is which every other component of the self owes its proper functioning. And what Dallas Willard is saying is that from a biblical perspective, the heart must be in line with God in order for anything to be in line with God. Your emotions, your relationships, your intellect, your thinking, your logic, whatever it is, your heart must first be in line with God in order for anything to be in line with God. That at the core of who we are, we should be pure in our desire and goal to live in the presence and experience the presence of God. So it is not that we like stop life. We don't take up monasticism, although on some days that sounds fantastic. We don't stop life to allow God to be the center of everything. We must unlearn, we must do the hard work, Lord help us, of unlearning and relearning how to center everything we do, every part of who we are around God. And that's the complexity of even like quiet time in church culture. Many of us were raised with the, the Christian experience or thought that like we get up early in the mornings, we spend time with God and his word, and then we move out through the rest of our day. But so often we just like leave God in that 20 minute window in the morning. And the call of the Christian is not to have a really faithful 20 minute window in the morning. The call of the Christian is to walk with Jesus in everything we do, to have God at the center, the core of our heart in everything we do. So please don't hear, I'm not like, please keep spending time with Jesus. Don't stop that. But let us not stop there. May those 20 minutes, five minutes, hour, whatever it is, may that permeate. May we take God with us in everything else we do. You see, the way that we work should flow from the way we interact with God. The way that we engage in relationships around us should flow from the way we interact with God. The key to understanding how to be pure of heart is not by accomplishing things or checking things off a list or keeping high moral ground, but by seeking God's presence in every activity and responsibility that we carry with us. The book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
And while we often read this as a, like a salvific experience, and I don't think that's totally wrong, we need the Spirit of God to invade the hard spaces of our heart and give us a heart of flesh again. There are places in our heart and in our life where we still hold these like barriers and walls, maybe like the things we inherited from our family of origin or purity culture or or something else in the world that's form us. And God wants to take those broken things and give you new things that bring life. I've heard it said that Jesus is not at war with your heart. Jesus is at war for your heart. Jesus is after your heart because the heart is the center of our being. Everything else we do flows from it. Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, hear those words again. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So are we, church, are we guarding our hearts in terms of its dedication to Jesus alone? Because that is what Jesus is getting after when he says pure of heart. He is talking about the one thing, the primary thing that your heart is oriented toward. The one thing that your heart loves. Author and Christian philosopher, uh, James K.A. Smith in his book, You Are What You Love. Fantastic read, pick it up. Um, He says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect but forms our loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas in your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. Jesus wants your heart, and not in a like cheap grace, pray the prayer sort of way. Jesus wants your heart in the like, there is nothing I long for, nothing I want more, nothing I desire more than to live life with Jesus sort of way. When we turn back to Psalm 24 and the question that David poses, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? And he answers in the next verse, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. When Jesus says that the pure in heart see God, he is speaking less about ethics and more about idolatry. He is speaking less about your behavior and more about what your heart actually belongs to. It's the reason the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, for your flourishing, there's a whole other teaching on that. We'll get there one day. But the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. Or another acceptable translation is that you shall have no other gods besides me. When a man and a woman join together in marriage, the husband quite literally belongs to the wife, and the wife belongs to the husband. And so for me, while I belong to my wife, Jackie, that means that every other woman on the face of the earth is another woman in the context of my marriage. And so Jesus, in the same way, commands us that we should have no other God before or besides him. No other God. They are all other gods besides him. Or said in another way, Jesus will not share your love or affection with anyone but himself. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God, he's speaking to the reality 
that to see and experience God, we must not give our hearts or the core of who we are to anything but him. Church, may we like be willing to seek him that we might actually find him. He will meet you there. He promises to like seek me and you will find me. He promises to meet you there. He promises to meet you there. May we seek him and may we find him with the core of who we are. And from that place, we live our lives with God at the center of everything that we do. Everything flows from that reality, that unseen reality. Everything we see flows from that place. So what is it that we place in position, either like in place of God or other like category of the things that we worship other than Jesus? Um, the Ephesians, people who lived in Ephesus, were known for creating other gods to ensure that if the gods they trusted in fell short, then they would have like banked some other gods just in case. And, and like church, we do this too. We do this too. Um, and I think if I were to speculate about idolatry, there's kind of two types of idolatry in the scriptures, but I would speculate we do more of that than we do the like actual worship of lowering God and placing someone else in his place. I don't, I don't think that's the, the conviction, at least that I carry, of where the church is currently at with idolatry. I think we add a whole bunch of other things in case somehow like Jesus falls short for us. We add these other things to ensure that like if God happens to not be enough, at least I, like, at least I created a plan B out of my like, comfort or my rightness or whatever else it is that there's a plan B other than just like wholly trusting and worshiping in the core of our being, being around, around the person of Jesus. So we too check all sorts of boxes in our heart to ensure that in case God turns out not to be enough, we are okay. And the question is, what if our life was built around the reality that God alone is enough? And sometimes as we even like stir on those questions, it's hard to identify from an individualistic perspective um, of the other things that we worship or that we give our lives to or that we place our trust in or anything like that. But when we step back and we look at it either as like a community or a culture, we see much uh, with much more clarity the other things that we like give our trust and time and resources to. The things that can become idolatrous in our own hearts without us even noticing. And there are three things that I, just this week as I prayed and considered, there are three things that just feel idolatrous for this moment in culture for us that are like wholeheartedly creeping its way into Jesus' church. And the first is that we are like overly consumed with being right. We are so consumed with having the right answers, being in the right social circles, staying on the right side of morality and having exactly the right theology. But I hate to tell you, almost no one understood Jesus' answers. 
He was never in the right social circles. The people he argued with most were on the right side of morality, and no one clearly understood Jesus' theology even after he rose from the grave. May our hearts not be consumed with rightness more, they are the consume, more than they are consumed with our desire for God and what he's doing in the world in and through his people. The second is that we have this desire as a culture and as a church to be the most fair. Culturally speaking, we all want to be people. You won't meet anyone on the streets who's like, I just want to be really unfair. Everyone has this like desire for fairness. The problem with that is we can't at all agree on what that actually means. The political left believe it's fair to tax the rich and redistribute the wealth to those uh, that are poor. The political right wants to be able to like keep the wealthy's pockets full that they might create more jobs. We want to love neighbors without homes, but we don't want to enable them. We want to support Black Lives Matter and we want to support Blue Lives Matter. We want to be the example of logic and fairness. But regardless of what side we end up on in all of those different debates, what we end up doing is forming this thing in our heart that takes fairness back to being right, where we view the other side as wrong, and now we lack mercy and patience and grace for someone who thinks differently than I do. That's why we can't have conversations even in the church anymore. Like We could vote for different political parties, but we can't come together as brothers and sisters and break bread. That's ridiculous. May our hearts be filled with grace and mercy that like even when people don't think like us, we're willing to come to the table with them. Even when we disagree about what's fair for the other person or what's right for them, that we can come together as Christ's body that the world would know God's love. The scriptures say that, that the world will know his love by the way we love one another. Church, may we love. And to be clear, the Christian faith is not built on fairness. It's built on love. So may we as a church walk with wisdom in love as the Holy Spirit guides us. Not just functioning in a way that seems most fair to us. Lastly is the idea that we get to like fabricate and form our own version of truth. This idea of moral relativism or defining our own truth like you do you, whatever's true for you is right as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. And this like this secular perspective is absolutely like invading the church's walls. Regardless of what news networks you watch or don't, secular culture is redefining truth, is whatever your personal belief system is, as long as it does not harm anyone else. And the problem with that, the breakdown of that, is we can never agree on what harm actually is. When we all get to define our own truth in our own terms, we can't come to an agreement about what harm means. Is it, is it words or is it actions? If it's actions, then do you get a pass if it's how you were raised, if, if it's the nature or the nurture perspective that you come from. And when this secular narrative is embraced, we all end up sounding like Adam and Eve pointing the finger, blaming someone else for the way that we chose to act according to how we best perceived truth. 
We must be people, become people that desire God's truth more than our perspective of truth. We must reject the secular narrative that like each individual gets to decide what truth means. That's not what the scriptures teach us. That's not what God's revealed word says. So as followers of Jesus, we must do the hard and deep internal work to see what things get our time and attention and allegiance, the things that get our worship besides God himself. Because you, like I, we have these deep internal flaws and imperfections. John Mark Comer, a pastor uh, in Portland, often says, like, the role and responsibility of the church is to take the things that we've been, like, that we've built our foundation on, often that we inherit from our family of origin, and we must be reparented by God. Like, we must learn again what God's perspective, his view, his truth says about life and the way we ought to live it. We must allow our hearts to be formed around God and him alone. Henry Nouwen, speaking of Jesus and having a pure heart, says this, Jesus, the beloved of God, has a pure heart. Having a pure heart means willing one thing, willing one thing. Jesus wanted only to do the will of his heavenly Father. What Jesus did or said, he did and said it as the obedient Son of God. John 8, 28 29 says, what I say is what the Father has taught me, and Jesus speaking, what I say is what the Father has taught me. He who sent me is with me and has not left me to myself, for I always do what pleases him. There are no divisions in Jesus' heart. There are no double motives or secret intentions. In Jesus, there is complete inner unity because of his complete unity with God. Becoming like Jesus is growing in purity of heart that we would will one thing, that the Father's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes um, when we ask that question, like, what does God have for me? What does God will? At least, at least when I was raised in the faith, we used to ask and, like, wear bracelets that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? I'm sure some of you, too. You may even still have your bracelets. If you do, I'll buy it from you. So, um, and I think sometimes um, that question can be helpful, but other times it's not terribly helpful. You see, Jesus wasn't like a white kid raised on the west side of town uh, in an upper middle class family. He was like from the Middle East, a dark-skinned man who was raised in Jewish tradition. So saying like, what would Jesus do and dragging him into my 21st century perspective? Maybe not be the best way to word it. But what might be the best way to word it is like, what would the Spirit of God do? What would Jesus do if he were born into my situation? What does love look like if Jesus had the life that I have? What does demonstrating and walking in love to God and to neighbor look like if he were me? So maybe not what would Jesus do, but if Jesus were to be me, if Jesus were to, if, if I were to be the like incarnate son of God, if I were to walk in full obedience and in step with the spirit, what does that look like in my situation? What does that look like in your situation? to demonstrate love to the world. 
And as Henry Nouwen says, we, we grow into this. We grow into purity of heart. May we absolutely become more like Jesus as we mature, as God takes things away from our heart and adds things to our heart. As he reorchestrates our lives, not just to another thing or a higher moral ground or a different set of behaviors, but as he reorchestrates our lives to him and to him alone, then may we see God. So as we celebrate Pentecost Sunday today, as we ask the Holy Spirit, as we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, come, or God, come into this place. Let us take our hearts honestly before God this morning. May we take off the veneer that we show people. May we take off the veneer we even put between us and God. May we let that down as we come into God's presence because we know that he doesn't see the outward appearance of man. He sees the heart. So may we stop acting before him. May we quit wearing a mask before him. May we come before him with our true and honest heart, and may we allow the Spirit to do work inside of it that we would be made more into Christ's image. May we allow the Spirit to churn the dark places of our heart or the walls that we've put up as we desire to become more like God, as we desire to see God, as we desire to become pure in heart as Jesus was. So we're gonna just close this time as we just like begin to go back to singing and encounter the Spirit together. Our, our response time after the teaching is, in, in my conviction, one of the most important things we do here on a Sunday. We respond to God. We respond to His Word and what the Spirit's doing inside of us. We don't just like put that aside, take some notes in a journal. We don't just like allow a little bit more knowledge to come into our brain. We allow the Spirit to do deep work in our hearts. And so I, my, my desire, my heart is that as a community that follows Jesus, as we come back to singing together, that we would come before God naked and unashamed, that we would allow our hearts to be formed and transformed to love him and him alone. Let us pray. God, we need your, we need your help. We are desperate for this work. God, I am desperate for this work but it is not a work that like I can just fabricate on my own to like run on adrenaline for as long as I can from a word from your scriptures. I need the deep work that the Holy Spirit does in like my innermost being at the core of who I am. And so Jesus, as we, as we sing, as we process with you, as we allow your spirit into our hearts, may you, may you reveal the things that are in there that you don't want there anymore. May you stir a like new vision of what it's like to live a flourishing life, pure in heart, abiding in God. Holy Spirit, help us. Holy Spirit, come. Praise things in your name. Amen.